Welcome to the On The Right Path podcast. I'm Brett Gunning, your host of the show. Today we continue with our Pete Newell series as we speak to Earl Schultz, one of Pete's former players at the University of California, Berkeley. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Great to have you on the podcast today. So glad you could be with us. I wanted to jump right into things and, and just see if you could talk a little bit about kind of your first interactions with Coach Newell, you know, going back to when you, you first made the decision to go and play for him at Cal. I know you were an all-city guard coming out of L.A. Can you just talk about some of those early first interactions with him? Well, I didn't really know who Pete Newell was, and uh, I wanted to go away to school. My plan was at that time, being in high school and not knowing anything, was to go uh, to med school. And at Cal's med school was considered the best in the West Coast. So, And I wanted to wait, go away to school, uh, uh, not because there was anything wrong at home, but just uh, mature and all that kind of thing. So uh, anyhow, uh, they... Uh, were recruiting me, and uh, I went to a basketball game down in L.A., and Cal was playing UCLA or SC, and so I met Pete, and, you know, it was just nice meeting, and then we went to Berkeley, and uh, both during my junior and senior year, talking to him and everything, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I really didn't know him. I didn't know how brilliant he was or much about him, and uh, so uh, I still decided that's where I wanted to go, and... Uh, he was very kind to my parents, and they were sort of excited about uh, me going to Berkeley. And so uh, that's how that part of it uh, went the early years before I went up there to uh, be a freshman at that time. Of course, we had freshman team back in those days. So so now you get up to campus, and, and like you said, no one knew kind of the legend that he was going to become, you know, uh, at that time. But just talk about now Now you're at Cal and, and part of the freshman team, and, and uh, obviously the program was, 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 you know, one of the top programs and, and about to really take off. What, what hit you kind of being around him now as a player on the team? But what were kind of your, some of your first memories of, of him being your coach now? Well, obviously, uh, Rene Herrerius was his freshman coach and, uh, uh, for us. And, uh, you know, he played for them at USF when they won the NIT, of course. And so anyhow, they, you know, they were very, very professional. <clears throat> they wanted us to get an education, wanted us to attend class. And, uh, you know, uh, here we are up there meeting other freshman teammates that we're going to be. So it's sort of a funny experience. You go away to school, playing for a coach you don't know, with teammates you've never met before. But everything worked out, and Pete was uh, handled everybody uh, separately. And as the years went on, and we could see that, but uh, you never questioned who was in charge or who was running the show, you know. And so uh, we all were going to try and do the best we could and see what happened. That's all. That's awesome. Talk about the uh, the, the famous hands up drill. What? <laughs> when did you first get introduced to that? Well, we did. I don't remember doing that as a freshman. <clears throat> I will tell you one thing that was sort of interesting. Uh, Rennie and I guess Pete was involved in it. Uh, when you were a freshman, the first two weeks you were up there, <clears throat> you had to shoot your free throws underhanded, like Rick Barry. And if you improved <laughs> your free throw percentage, then you stayed with it. And if not, you could go back to your old way. And I stayed with it and shot underhanded the rest of my life. And it worked out good for me, uh, which was sort of a interesting situation but the hands up 
was a killer. We used to do every other day in the gym with hands up, skipping rope and stretching exercises, what they'd be called today, no weight lifting. And then the, on the alternate days, we'd go to the cross country course and run that and increase our endurance. And actually he had a, after you'd run a mile on the cross country course, you'd get to a, a place where you'd take a little a breather and then there was a hill, it was about 130-some yards high, and it about seemed like it was 30 degrees. But anyhow, the whole point was he wanted us to do the best we can at, not, you ain't going to run up this hill fast, but keep going up the hill and not quit. The whole purpose was to not quit. And, of course, the centers were the heavy-legged guys. They were the last ones up the hill. The guards probably first, forward, second. But the point was, as you learn mental toughness, and discipline, and then at the top of the hill you'd get a breather, and then as the weeks of uh, training uh, continued on, you'd run another mile up, up on top of that hill, then turn around and run two and a half miles back down, and you'd do that every other day. And but the opposite day was in the gym with the hands up, and it was it was absolutely a killer. Uh, again, <laughs> it, it taught you discipline and perseverance, and no quitting. You know, and nobody wanted to let the other guys down, so you kept doing the best you could. That's that's great. It's it's interesting. I'm sure you know you you saw uh, and probably read many times the uh, the great book by uh, Bruce Jenkins about Coach Newell called The Good Man. And I know there was a um, a story in there where Coach Newell talked about some of the drills that he would have you guys do he he knew were very difficult drills and what and what he wanted to do was to see you know how people would react through the drill you know who who was the leader in the group who who rallied the the troops and and uh was there some was there going to be somebody to quit and you know and a lot of times we look at doing drills as, as kind of just to do the drill and it's like coach had such a a thought of, you know, a deeper sense of what can we learn about the kids through the drill. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, he, they taught us mental toughness, not to quit, uh, always 100%. And, of course, we were in phenomenal condition. That was one thing he wanted to do. And later on, uh, when we were playing UCLA at one point in time, he said, you know, they always try to make somebody else call the first time out. He said, you're going to end up playing 40 minutes with no timeouts if he doesn't call a timeout. That is John Wood. <laughs> and, uh, and and we did play it, and, and UCLA called the timeout. Uh, oh, but, again, it. it was, it was uh, you know, Pete was, Pete was brilliant. And one thing I should say in here, he handled every individual on the team separately. I can remember hmm. he chewed Daryl Imhoff's butt up and down and all around. Just just get into him unbelievable. And then he might walk over to the next guy. And in, in my case, he'd walk over and he'd be very quiet. And he'd say, Earl, you got to get this stuff. You're, you're dogging it or whatever you're doing. You got to get your stuff together. He'd handle it. Everybody was different. And uh, he was a genius at uh, getting everybody to play to their maximum, in my opinion. That's awesome. And it's funny, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what kind of coach was he? Was he a yeller and a screamer? Was he a, a you know, quiet? Was he a motivator? Was he a, was he a guy that, you know, and it, it sounds like what you're saying is, is he kind of was it all and he had a great feel uh, for, for ways to impact each guy individually. I, I guess that's what you're saying. 
Yeah, no, I can remember going over to Stanford to play, and we went on a bus, and we were playing over <clears throat> in Palo Alto. And uh, we were just walking off the bus. I mean, we weren't lollygagging or anything, and he was all wound up. And, God damn it, you know, get, get your ass off the bus, da 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 And we weren't even, we weren't playing around. We fooled around, and he'd do that. And then I can remember one time when we were playing UCLA. I was a sophomore, and we went down to the, <clears throat> the Pan Pacific Pavilion. We're playing UCLA. And he, he, there's two minutes to go in the half or something. He says, hey, I'm going to put you in there. And he says, you're going to end up guarding Banton. He says, whatever you do, don't foul him. And he was as calm as only Pete and I <laughs> and nobody else around. He couldn't hear the crowd, nothing. I said, you got it, Pete. And I fouled, fouled the guy twice in two minutes. So <laughs> he never said anything, you know. But, I mean, that's the way he handled it. He was, he was totally into each person. He was a brilliant on the bench because – of the way he handled people, and, and he had everybody, you were looking at the other players and, and assessing their, uh, you know, weaknesses and, and, and good points and things you had to look out for. Whether And also you had to look out for a, maybe a forward instead of a guard or even the center. You're supposed to know everybody on the other team. Incredible. Well, you, you know, you speak about those teams. I mean, you were a part of uh, obviously an amazing run at, at, at Cal and an amazing part of Coach Newell's career. Talk, talk about the 59 team that, that obviously goes on to win the national championship. You beat uh, Oscar Robertson in Cincinnati. You beat Jerry West in West Virginia. What, what do you kind of remember most about that, about that team, the 59 team? Well, um, Pete said, you know, always said that the best team he had was the 60 team. But the 59 team, I was a sophomore. I'd gotten a shoulder separation at the start of the season, uh, and so I had my shoulder taped for the first six weeks of practice. So I, I ended up being either, I think, fourth guard, third guard, something like that. I didn't start. And anyhow, the seniors, you know, they were, they were really good and uh, played great. But, it was a, again, it was a team effort, and the scouting by Rennie Herrerius was – unsurpassed. Uh, I can remember when we were getting ready to go back to Louisville to play Oscar first and then whoever afterwards, it turns out to be West, of course. And uh, I was uh, a poor uh, substitute, but I was supposed to be Oscar. And so, you know, they were doing all these different things, the double teaming when he come into their year zone and all this and that. And I asked Rennie, and I said, Rennie, can we beat Oscar? And he says, unless Oscar has the greatest game of his entire life, we will win. And that's before mm. we left the West Coast. And I think we were like 15-point underdogs or something like that. But, I mean, these guys, they were on another level, and they didn't leave anything for chance. Everything was thought of ahead of time, with the exception of that half-court trap that caught us with, with West Virginia when Fred Schaus and West in, that first, in the championship game. That did catch Pete, and that was the only time – any of us ever remember him getting caught off guard, so to speak, a little bit. <laughs> so then talk about the 60 team. I know you just said, uh, you know, the, the thought was that that team was, was even better. What, what, what kind of, um, what hit you most about, about that team? I know you, you, you wound up losing to Ohio state in, in the finals to talk about that team a little bit. Well, uh, we were, we were awful good. There was never any question who was going to win the game. We always thought and knew we would win the game. And, and you know, we tried to operate 
just as, as he would have us to do, and we were awful good defensively. And one thing, you know, I remember seeing uh, USF when Russell was playing and Casey Jones and Perry and those guys were the guards, and it was sort of the same thing. You could cheat like crazy if you were a guard or anybody else because you had Imhoff back there blocking shots. Nobody <laughs> went into the – got any gut lay-ins or – over you, so you could you could be pretty pretty strong, but we we should never forget that you know he really was the the star of the team, and, and you know McClintock played really good, Tandy Gillis played good, all the guys played good and contributed, but Imhoff was was the main thing. I I remember uh, the following year when Imhoff had graduated, and McClintock and I and Morris and some other guys went up to play Washington, and we lose in two or three overtimes up in the state of Washington. And I said, I can't understand that. We beat these guys by 40 points last year and this and that. Then we went in and watched the film, and you saw the, the year before, guys drive by, take a shot. Daryl got the rebound. Daryl blocked the shot. Mm. Daryl got the rebound. Well, there was a big difference. We didn't have him playing. So, you know, you forget how great some of these guys were that you played with, <laughs> how much they contributed. Uh, that's awesome. So uh, obviously, you know, you, your last year you don't get to play for coach. He he winds up, uh, I guess we can say, retiring. Did did that did that kind of catch you off guard? Did did it, did, did it surprise you that he he kind of walked away? I mean, obviously there was the the stress and and the health and but but how 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 did that kind of impact you um, not having the chance to play for him in your last year? Well, I didn't think I didn't think that I got cheated. I never that even never even entered our mind. Things were whatever it was, it was, and I can remember sitting in the athletic department writing my parents, telling them, you know, I'm not starting. This was when I was a sophomore, you know. But Pete always did seniors would start unless they just couldn't do it, and then then the next guy'd step up. But no one ever questioned his decisions his knowing where you should be, when you should be playing, and this and that and another thing. And uh, so uh, it didn't catch us off guard. Obviously, we were greatly disappointed, but we all loved Rennie, and we'd all played for Rennie as freshmen, and, and we knew he was the best scout in America, uh, right. without question, uh, when we'd get the scouting reports on the other teams. I mean, hell, we knew their plays better than they did. Uh, and uh, so, you know, those of us that played for Rennie as freshmen, you know, we played good for him. We just didn't have as much talent as a couple other guys, and we didn't win that league that year, obviously. Uh, I think SC beat him because they had Rudimetkin and Chris Appel and some other guys. But I, we weren't disappointed. But, you know, Pete, Pete was skinny. He was smoking two to three packs a day. He was drinking <laughs> coffee, you know, and, and, and he did the right thing. But what an amazing thing when you sit back and think that he walked away from the game coaching it at 44 years of age. It's just phenomenal. Most people overstay their welcome and hang around and hang around, and they're on the other side of the hill, maybe down to the bottom of the other side of the hill before they just finally have to quit or whatever. And Pete left on top. And, and not many people do that, but I do think it was the health-driven situation and, uh, you know, hey, I feel lucky my path ever crossed with that man because no matter where I turn, <clears throat> left, right, when I'm 40, 50, 60, anything I do relates to Pete Newell. 
And it's true of every guy on our team and the people that we met <clears throat> through Pete Newell. I mean, gee, I can remember going to Del Mar racetrack, <clears throat> and he says, you got to go with me. you got to go with me. It's my birthday. It's August 31st, okay, 2015. And his close friend Pete Roselle lives 10 minutes from our house. So we're going to have lunch with him, and he's got Wayne Lucas, the great thoroughbred trainer, Klosterman, the quarterback from the L.A. Rams and that, uh, Jack Kemp, who was running for president at that time, Pete Roselle, and, and Pete Newell. And you go with these heavyweights, and everybody's walking up to the table, and they're all kissing their tails and this and that, and you're saying, guy, what a heavyweight group. But that's the group he, he traveled with. You know, and if it wasn't him, it might have been Bobby Knight or somebody else. And uh, so for us peons that were lucky enough to choose Cal when we didn't know the coach, didn't know the team, <laughs> really didn't know anything, the greatest decision of our lives, and it has affected every day, every hour of, of our lives since then. Well, it's incredible that you say that, you know, that he retired – at the age that he did, and then he, he lived, you know, up into, into 90, his 90s, I think it was 93. You, start, you think about almost 50 years of impact after he retired, you know, basically 50 years of impacting a lot of lives after, he, you know, after he retired coaching. I mean, that's, um, that, that's it's, it's just amazing. And again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that got impacted in that, in that uh, time span. But it, it, to your point, it, it's incredible that he was able to leave on top. And then he, then he spent the next 50 years impacting uh, hundreds of thousands of people and coaches and players. And uh, it's just incredible. Yeah, no, I like, you know, go other, ahead. excuse me for interrupting the other day, <clears throat> you know, I know he used to do the big man camp and his whole thing, we kept telling Pete, you got to charge more for these kids. They were charging thousand or five hundred when it started and got up. Maybe the pros had to pay two thousand. You know, they'd ask the clubs to pay two thousand to help defer the expenses. When Merv Lope was running it and Clint McClintock was helping him, and, and he said, "No, no, we got to keep it down there." He, he was a teacher. He wanted to do it for free. He taught so many guys, that, obviously NBA players, big men, and he didn't want to charge. Never did. He had gone broke a lot of things. He'd go to clinics and give talks with Bobby Knight, and if Bobby Knight didn't insist on him giving Pete a stipend, he wouldn't have collected anything. He paid his own expenses. I mean, that's what he did. And then I saw the other day that Elijah Allen was charging 50 grand for private big man lessons. I, I don't know if it's even true, but it, it's a different era and different deal. <laughs> no, you're right. So fast forward, I know in um... 2014, you were the recipient of the Pete Newell Career Achievement Award, and and I saw one of your quotes was, you know, for many years he's been the most influential person in my life. I mean, just talk about how great that must have been, um, you know, to receive that award, and, and just talk about that. Well, for a lot of us, obviously there could be nothing greater than being associated with the name of Pete Newell. <clears throat> and, you know, he lived like 10 minutes from my wife and I, and we more or less kept an eye out for him and took care of him. And I, I don't know if you know it, but he died at our house when Jerry West was coming down with the guy writing his Jerry West autobiography. And they got there yeah. 10 minutes late, and Pete was already dead, and so Jerry was pretty devastated and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he uh, he, he just uh, just influenced everybody. I mean, people would tell me, I, I can't believe he's such a big 
big, important person because he's so kind. He talks to me about what I'm interested in instead of that. And, and he just was a giving person, and money didn't mean anything to him. But he was so principled, and, guy, he could be tough. He could really be tough. I mean, uh, if, if, if he thought he was in the right and the police came to his house and were telling him something, he'd tell him you're wrong. And <laughs> pretty amazing. He might even want to like, get in a fight with him. I can remember going to Santa Anita Racetrack with him. I had a horse that was running up there because I fooled with the thoroughbred horses, and I was – and my horse was getting ready to run. It was by Seattle Slough, and Pete had gone up to bet, and I couldn't find him. I wanted him to see the race. I went up and grabbed him. He's arguing with the teller behind there. The guy was eating his lunch, and Pete was chewing his butt because he wouldn't get over and take his bet. Instead, he was eating a sandwich, and he, <laughs> he wanted to punch the guy out. But, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. It's, 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 it's pretty amazing stuff. That's awesome. So, like you said, you, you know, you you were obviously with him more than anybody, uh, especially in the last couple of years of of his life, and and even more than that. But what what were his what were his kind of thoughts about the game? You know, the game of basketball in in those last years. I mean, did did he watch it? You know, did you guys watch a lot of games? Was he watching a lot of games still at that point, or would he talk yeah. about it? I mean, yeah, no, he'd watch a lot of games. I mean, of course, he was. You know, he used to coach baseball, as you know, and uh, he was assistant to a guy named George Wolfman at Cal. And, and if you talk to any of the baseball players, um, they'd rather hear and get taught by Pete Newell than George Wolfman, and that's no respect to Wolfman, but it just Pete was so overwhelmingly brilliant and, and, and insightful and handled people so well. So anyhow, uh, yeah, no, he, uh, he – I lost my train of thought there, but uh, – just the game of basketball, as far as watching, was he watching it? And a lot of them, and 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 he used to talk to Bobby Knight uh, an awful lot about stuff going back and forth. And and then when he was in the scouting end of it for Cleveland and as well as L.A., and he was damn good at a scout. You know, he draft. Well, you could see the guys that he drafted over a period of time. And of course, you being yeah. used when he was here at San Diego, Rudy Tomjanovich and some of those guys. Yep. But 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 he he was really really good at that kind of stuff. But he followed it close. But he followed baseball close. Really didn't follow the NFL. Uh, I just say baseball and basketball was <laughs> too. But but he had that analytical mind, and he was always trying to manage or think ahead of time. And it just was his nature. That's what he did. And, and the horses, right? <laughs> yeah. No no no. He was. He loved to handicap the horses. I had a box at Del Mar for 25 years, and I kept <laughs> the last five or six just so Pete could go over because he loved to go on Wednesdays and Saturdays for sure and maybe another day. And he'd handicap all night. He'd come over to the house and sit on a chase lounge and sit in the sun because he worshipped the sun, and, and his skin was like leather until the end. It was like onion skin then. And he'd love to sit in the sun and handicap, and he'd have all his picks picked out. And then he would go to the track, and he'd walk from a, the box up to make his bet and change his mind after 15 hours of handicapping. And he just <laughs> screw it up every time. He was he was a, he was amazing, but uh, he loved he loved playing the ponies, and uh, and uh, it was his, it kept him going. I mean, he always had he's doing the crossword puzzles, and of course. He had so many players that would call and chat with him and talk to him, as well as coaches, uh, you know, and he and he would uh, advise them or, you know, listen to them or whatever they wanted to talk about. 
and he was always insightful. I can remember, you know, this was when he was down here in San Diego, and, and uh, I'm trying to think of the, the head coach at Stanford at the time. Then he went to Berkeley, uh, got a medal. Uh, Mike, was it Mike Montgomery? Montgomery? Yeah, yeah, Mike Montgomery, and, and he came down, and the, and the the Warriors were practicing over at UC San Diego's thing, and he says, well, i got to go over there. Montgomery's there. And I, Then afterwards we were going to a hotel room, and ESPN was – interviewing him for their historical tapes and all this and that. So I'm his driver. So I went over there, and, and, and Mike Montgomery gave him this most – and Al Adels was there too – gave him this most wonderful introduction to telling his players that, you know, you don't realize how great this man is and blah, blah, blah. And, hell, you almost cried sitting there listening to him because all of it was true. But the respect that they showed him and then every player come by and shake his hand, and it was – it was pretty impressive. And then we went to the hotel, and they were interviewing him. And hell, he was talking about <clears throat> Paul Gallen and this and that. And he was one of the few guys that went back way, way back and knew the hist- history of basketball and different plays and where he had played and all that stuff. And so he was uh, he was an amazing man, and, and it, it's a it's unbelievable that he lived till he was 93, and uh, and made it that long with with how he treated his body early on between the cigarettes and the <laughs> So, Earl, again, great, great uh, conversation. If I could just finish it with this. I mean, I, obviously, you know, the spirit of uh, this organization, On the Right Path, the, the spirit of this podcast series, and, and the purpose of it is, is really just to carry on uh, Coach Newell's legacy and, and make make sure that the spirit of, what he was about continues, you know, and, and the baton is just passed on to to players and, and, and coaches for for years to come. And, and obviously, if, if there's anybody that can speak to his spirit, it, it would be you. You played for him, and then you had this amazing friendship with him the, the rest of his life. I mean, if there was – I know you've spoken on a bunch, but if you were going to choose one thing to say, you know what, I think this is – this is the thing that people have to take most from Coach Newell. Uh, what, what, what do you think that would be? Well, I think I think he strived for perfection, uh, and there were no shortcuts. And uh, in his greatest thing would be to play the perfect perfect game. He and Bobby used to talk about that. They'd sit down. Maybe it was down at Texas Tech or maybe it was Indiana or wherever, and they'd discuss back and forth and both these great minds hashing it out. Uh, but but I would say try to play the perfect game, and uh, at the end, whether you won or lost, was slightly less relevant and important than how you played the game. And I think that's a lot to be taken for that. If you do things right, you pay the price, you work hard, you use your mind, don't get stupid. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you'll be all right. And I, I, I think, I think that's it. But he, 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 his greatest thing would be to play the perfect game. That's awesome. That is great. And, and again, can't thank you enough because you, you know, it's one thing to read articles and read books, but to to hear it from somebody like you who who played for him and was a part of just amazing teams, you know, that, that he coached. Uh, and then again, all the time you spent with him, um, this, this talk today was just priceless. And, and again, I can't thank you enough and, and really appreciate your time today. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, anything with Pete is, 
very important to all of us, and we're lucky that we crossed paths. That's all I can say. Oh, that's awesome. Well, take care, and again, can't thank you enough. Thank you.